You're listening to Fund Shack. I'm Ross Butler, and today I'm talking with Paul Newsom, Head of Portfolio Management at Unigestion, a 20 billion euro asset manager headquartered in Geneva. Paul has been at Unigestion for two decades, during which he's set up the North American operation and played a key role in its expansion into co-investments, directs and secondaries. Today we talk about his key investment themes, fundraising, secondaries, AI and much, much more. I hope you enjoy it. Paul, we were just talking off camera about unigestion and how shockingly ignorant I am <laughs> about it. But it seems like you do a huge amount. You do direct, proper primary investments into the mid-market. You have secondaries. You, you have some growth exposure. Mm-hmm. And you are truly global. How, yes. does, how does unigestion work and function as a coherent, you know, profitable business? See, I joined the firm 20 years ago. And when I joined, we were we were still global. We were smaller. We we're more of a of a of a fund investing shop. So fund of funds. We had started co-investing. We'd started our secondaries business, and then over time, we've just grown. We've grown our team. We've grown our network. So so we, so today we have probably we count almost seven hundred investment partners. That includes fund managers. That includes. Um, industry specialists, it includes fundless sponsors. And they show us funds, they show us deals, they show secondaries, co-investments. So it's it's just evolved into, into what it is today. So you have 700 people today. How many? 700 investment partners, investment we call partners. them, who are fund, fund managers, uh, entrepreneurs, industry specialists, fundless sponsors who show us deals. So that that is also a network that we leverage off, and it enables us to invest the uh, what we do. And what about your core team? The core private equity team we're fifty people, almost fifty people. Unigestion as a whole is about one hundred and eighty people, because uh, private equity we are we're about eleven billion dollars of assets under management out of a total of twenty billion dollars, because we in addition to private equity we have a listed equity business. So. The private equity team, we benefit from this larger unigestion platform. Um, but then we have the, the 50 people. These are the, the investment specialists who are going out doing deals. So just so I'm clear on the 700, these are people that, that, that source you deals or are they also fund managers who you partner with? They're fund, man- they can, they're fund managers. They can be fund managers with whom we invest in our, in our, in our primary fund business, our funder fund business. They, they can be uh, partners who, who show us deals for our direct business. These can be also fund managers or industry specialists or fundless sponsors. And they can also be uh, partners who show us secondary deals. So, so the, this is just a network that's, that's grown over, over the last 20, 25 years. And you started out, so you're headquartered in Geneva and yes. you're in the UK when you joined 20 years ago. Yes. And so you've been busy setting up offices. And I think you set up the North American operation. Yeah. Yes. I set up the private equity part of the, the North American operation. So so I, I started in London in 2002. I was focusing on mainly on European uh, fund investments. In 2005, I volunteered to to go to the US and, and, and begin our 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 U.S. presence. We'd already been investing uh, in U.S. fund managers, but we didn't. We just didn't have a physical presence there yet. Um, there, I, I started to build a team. I was there four years, 
And then in 2009, I, I moved, I was asked by the firm to move to Geneva and head up the global investment team from 2009. And then to continue the story, in uh, a few things happened. 2017, we actually acquired a European manager called Akina, who was, who was based out of Zurich. They were also investing in the same part of the market as us, so, so middle market, as it was called, um, but only in Europe. Um, it, it seemed like a, a perfect match at the time because they were, they were European specialists with global investors, whereas Unigestion was more of a global um, investor with mainly European in, uh, clients. Mm. So that was so, a big deal for you. So yeah, it was a big. It was it was it was a a step, a real step change in our development. If you if you look at the history of the of the development yeah. of, the, of the private equity team. So pre two thousand seventeen, we were maybe two and a half billion dollars of, of of AUM in private equity. Post two thousand seventeen, after the merger, we were five billion dollars. Right, and that triggered the next stage of growth. To what we what we are today, which is ten eleven billion dollars of assets under management, and you started out primarily as fund investors, but you, over time you've become direct investors. How does that transition? Yeah, work? so so if I start from, we really started the private equity team started in about, about the mid nineties in Unigestion. So before before I joined, Unigestion dates back to nineteen seventy two. In fact, um, when the, the Unigestion firm was was founded. Um, in the mid-90s, Unigestion formed its first fund, institutional fund of fund for, for institutional investors. And then that's when we started doing fund investments. When I joined in 2002, we were, we were raising our, um, our, we'd just raised our third fund of fund, and we were just raising our first secondary fund. So th- th- bearing in mind, this, is, this was quite a pioneering for a European headquartered firm to do to to, to form a secondaries fund in two thousand two thousand one, mm. it, was, it was quite early. Yes, yeah, so you got an um, entrepreneurial spirit in the yes. culture of Unigestion, presumably, and that's how yeah. you've managed to follow the market in the right directions and build out a diversified private markets platform. Yeah, exactly. And then also on the the co investing, we had sporadically done co-investments as any fund investor was doing at the time. But we didn't really have a coherent, admittedly, 20 plus years ago, we didn't really have a coherent co-investment strategy. Mm. And it was really around 2007 or so when we, when we formed a, 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 a co- coherent strategy where we were just being a lot more active about doing our co-investments, more targeted with our with our fund managers, and and we started developing a specialist uh, co investment team at that time. So, of your fifty core people, you have a co investment team and a secondary yes, team. Yes, exactly. Direct teams on the ground in different regions. Yes. So, so for example, the the co investment direct team we call it direct because we also we also co lead and lead de- our own deals now. So we've evolved that far on the direct activity. Um, we have 13 people out of that 50 who just spend their days doing direct investing. And then for, say, similar for, for, for the secondary team, we have about, I think we have 11 people who are focused on secondaries. Now, an important point to mention is that these are not silos. These are not teams which 
do stuff on their own and don't talk to the rest. They are, we are, they're absolutely benefiting from the, the, obviously the direct, I mean, obviously the direct team benefits from our fund relationships because that's where we source a lot of deals from. That's where we get a lot, a lot of intel from. And the secondaries team also benefits from our from our fund relationships because mm. obviously GPs who show us secondary deals, yeah. they like the fact that we we can also do uh, fund investing. So the whole, if you were to think about um, our th- these three areas, they are they're overlapping uh, activities. Yeah, yeah. I, so I can see that there are obvious synergies there. Um, my my feeling though is that although unigestion is of some scale you're not like mega and yet you have as much diversification as you know some of the largest houses um have and so i'm just interested about how you because on paper the synergies are, are there but in practice getting these things to work can be very difficult to get the culture particularly across the world across many different geographies and cultures to get everyone to come together. How does that work in practical terms? And where, where do you sit in that? You personally sit in that process? Yeah, I think I would say if you think about um, what is the first, what is the common thread across everything we do? And I would, I think we say that is ultimately we are, we are giving our investors access to exciting Hard to access companies, which um, which are resilient, they're they're they niche, they're leaders in their in their market niche, uh, they're, ca- they're they're very cash flow generative. We're not we're not taking uh, s- stupid risks, limited leverage. So these are companies which uh, investors would love to have in their their own mm. portfolios. And then we give them the choice: Do you want this through? Do you want a direct por- uh, portfolio? Give you a more concentrated uh, approach with a, with higher perhaps a higher upside. Do you want a secondaries approach, which gives you more cash flow, uh, cash velocity, or do you want more of a, a broader um, primaries, diversified primaries approach? So that's that's a common thread, and and we we also across that we we think in terms of investment themes. So we have we have seven. Investment themes, and these are these. This is the lens through which we 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 look at deals, and these are these are areas or, or tailwinds which drive um, growth uncorrelated to to GDP. So, for example, so for example, future of work is one of our one of our seven investment themes, and mm-hmm. so future of work that includes education, reskilling. Um, Etc. We did a we did an investment uh, just on the through our secondary fund, just on the eve of of COVID. It's an enterprise software company which helps companies give remote access to their employees. So imagine this was already a tailwind before COVID. Hmm. More and more people were wanting to work remotely. Now just imagine what the COVID lockdown did with everyone working from home. It, it just hmm. it went through the roof. So many of these themes were actually. Were, were almost accelerated by, by uh, yeah. COVID and and other other difficulties. Healthcare is another one of our themes. Climate is a, is another one of our themes. Service service efficiency. So these are all themes which um, we've we've pretty much focused on for the last five five years plus, and they 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 they're fine tuned from from time to time, but they they drive. 
the uh, the investments in our portfolios. So there's a number of ways a private equity firm can do this. Typically, historically, let's say it's been more sectoral, mm-hmm. but you do themes rather than sectors. Yeah, I mean, it leads to certain sectors. Yeah, of course. Um, so if you look at our you look at our portfolios, we probably the the um the sector which you'll see the most is healthcare. I would say thir- that's 25 to 30 percent mm. of our of our portfolios tend to be exposed to healthcare. Um education is a is a is a big sector for us. As I mentioned, climate and, and resource efficiency mm. has been a key sector for us. It seems to be everywhere, cl- climate. Yes. Deal. I mean, people have been talking about it for a long time, but it seems to be everywhere in, in terms of like deals happening at the moment. People are yeah. looking and at it as a financial opportunity. Absolutely. Because we, we, we I mean, this is a, it's a massive topic in itself, but, yeah. but we, we really believe that that is where, where you, can, you can get very interesting returns whilst delivering an impact at the same mm. time. And, and historically, there's been this um, there's almost what we th- think a myth that if you if you if you're going after impact, you're you're um, you're compromising returns. But we think on the contrary, in in a, in the space like climate, you're actually getting better at it. Some of our best performing investments have have been on the climate side. We made a we made more than a ten x recently on a um, on a on a company that provides a char- char- electric vehicle charging infrastructure, mm. for example, I mean for obvious reasons, yeah. it's a, it's a hugely growing space. Well, private equity is very good at at, mm. at at dealing with change or allowing the corporate world to respond to change, and it's an area of big change and perhaps even more change than anyone really wants with the energy crisis at the moment. That maybe that's going to throw up some additional opportunities in the UK and Europe. Yes, I agree. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. So. Um, so that's the that's the direct side, and so I suppose I'd also like to kind of, okay, you've got the themes, but then you've got the global, you know, the global aspect, which must kind of it's just another layer of opportunity, but also complexity to yes, manage. Yes, yes, complexity, but then it also gives us uh, quite an interesting angle because, firstly, um, it's we have these seven themes, yes, but they they're applied very differently in in each region. So climate is a, is a very big topic here in in Europe, less of a topic, or it's it's behind in in North America. Pick it, certain areas like like the technology side of it is is is, hmm. is growing very strongly, and then also in Asia there are there are certain aspects which um which are which are growing at different rates. So so, so often we'll see uh, we'll think of it we'll see a theme which is very interest, interesting in one. One area in one region, but it's not so interesting in another. So it allows us to play our themes differently in different areas. That's one thing. And the other thing is, because we're investing in um, in typically smaller companies, they they, they may be uh, founder led. By the time we come into them, um, they're they're obviously uh, less professionally run. Um, they're probably local. So they will be, they absolutely will benefit from from a uh, an investor with a global mm. platform. So we've invested in companies which have which often have a buy and build um, strategy element to them, mm. and and that so so for example we invested in um, a Swiss based uh, firm called Home Instead, which um, which provides care at home for mm. for for seniors mm. and. 
um, they, they, they just made an acquisition in Australia. And they, that was one of the reasons they brought us on board to give them that, that global mm. platform to help them due diligence, source uh, deal, uh, mm. ac- opportunities in other geographies. So that's the direct side. But can I just come back to the, this, this preoccupation I guess I'm having with the unigestion structure? Because in practical terms, how, how do you make use of the, the, the geographic knowledge and the different product knowledge? So, for example, do you have a single investment committee? How often yes. do you meet and how do you meet? How, how does the interaction internally work? So each, uh, each, team, so each sub-team, let's say direct, secondary, primary team, they're, they're all run globally. So um, for, uh, uh, let me use the secondary team as an example because I know I've been, yeah. I've been talking a lot about the direct team. Yeah. So they will have, uh, they will have weekly uh, team meetings and then they, there will be deal teams. So, so, so we'll source deals and they will, uh, there'll be two or three people working on a deal. It may not necessarily be just two or three people from the same location. It might be, uh, for example, we're looking at a, uh, we might be looking at a US deal. So uh, in the waste uh, and recycling space, which I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. we did a deal there recently. So typically there'll be two local people working on that deal. And then maybe a European person might work on that deal because they have, they also have not sector knowledge from having done a deal in Europe. Mm. So, so we try and we think it's very healthy to have that, to have that cross regional participation in, in, in deals because then it brings different perspectives. Sorry to interrupt. And these individuals would be incentivized in a way that's, that's aligned. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, I mean, the secondary team all share from the, the, the global Right. carried interest in our secondary fund. In fact, right. the whole team participates to some degree in the, the carried interest of each fund. So, so, so everyone is aligned. Right. Great. And then, and then, so they are encouraged to, to bring high conviction deals to their mm. team, the sub team. Uh, and they'll only bring deals to the team if they're, if it's to a, to a, um, a certain level of, of conviction. And then the team, they will, work on, they will agree on the deals they're working on and resourcing, et cetera. And eventually um, deals are brought to the investment committee for, for, mm. for a first look. Right. And the investment committee is a global investment committee. I'm, on, I'm a member of the investment committee. There's five of us. We meet every week, every Wednesday, and um, um, deals are presented first as, a, as an early warning. We call them early warning memos. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, at that stage, these are deals which the investment teams feel very strongly about, but they would like to get initial feedback from the investment committee of due diligence areas they should look at, uh, any, hmm. any ideas the committee might have or, or references or, or contacts that they should talk to. So they haven't submitted a formal paper at this point. They've just it's given a, you the it's highlights. A, it's, a, it's still quite a detailed right, right. Yeah. Sort of draft paper, if you right, like. Yeah. I mean, it, it still could be a 20, 30-page paper. Right. Um, and then what the investment committee does is we allocate one person from the investment committee to be the review director, mm-hmm. who's so the, the devil's advocate to the yeah. deal. And I've often taken that role. And it's, it's a very useful role because not only do you come in completely unbiased 
and uh, un, un, un unemotional to the deal. Mm. Um, but you you can see the workings of of the deal. You can you can really see the work that the the due diligence team has done. Uh, I, as the review director, would get to meet the management team, the fund manager, the GP behind the deal, and uh, and and hear the mm. arguments for and against the deal. That's- and then this comes it comes back to the investment committee mm. with the the final recommendation. The main point is that the the investment committee does not is not just at the very very end of the process after all the work has been yeah. done. They just give the thumbs up or thumbs yeah. down. I mean, it, it's they're, they're very much integrated into the process. Slight sidetrack. Yes. While we're talking about the uh, investment selection process, I noticed on one of your uh, communications that you have an, an AI tool that helps. I was at a technical private equity conference last week and a couple of people asked me, I don't know why they asked me, if I ever come across any private equity firms using AI as part of their primary selection mm-hmm. tools. And, and I hadn't really, but but you have one. Could you? Yes. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's uh, our pride and joy. <laughs> we call it, uh, it's called Pepper. Uh, it stands for Private Equity Predictive Performance. So performance. That's good. Yeah, very good. <laughs> we we did an we did an internal competition to come up with the ah, it's a great uh, way of doing the things. Yeah, <laughs> um, and also it, it gives an added spice pet to the uh, to to our to our investment process. So so it, it works both ways. No, it, I mean it's a very it's now a very important part of the process. It's something that's been developed over the last five years, um, and it was initiated by we we have these links to um to to academic institutions so um we, we've got a link to imperial college um london we also work very closely with the EP, epfl which is the the university in Lo- the technical university in lausanne and um and there we every year we take on students to do internships and these are these are mature these are uh, masters students who, who have very technical backgrounds. And five years ago, we one of these students, we, 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 we gave them the, um, um, the projects to, 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 to say, look, what, is, what predicts performance better? Is it, is it the original LBO model that was put together by, you know, by the, the investment team? Or is it some other aspects of the deal that that were able to predict the performance, irrespective of the LBO model? And sorry, what do you mean by LBO model? The investment the, the, case, the 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 the, 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 the basically the, the the business plan. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Showing the input into an Excel spreadsheet, um, giving a, uh, a predicted perf- uh, return. Um. And and it's essentially just the numbers, the numbers. Um, or are there other aspects to a mm. deal mm. that could you give you better mm. predictions? And of course, I say of course because uh, we, we, we've we've <laughs> seen got the model. <laughs> we, of course, it's the uh, there are other aspects to a deal. Mm. And in the end, um, we uh, we we were able to, through the the analysis. We found there are forty variables in in a deal that can predict very accurately the ultimate performance of a deal. I mean, 
up to 80% accuracy. It's very impressive. And these are, so what are these 40 variables that includes EBITDA, so the obvious, the obvious ones to start with, like EBITDA, EBITDA growth, uh, margin, debt levels, etc. But also other aspects like, um, like sector performance, uh, experience of the management team, mm. gender diversity, ESG, um, um, and then and then other uh, macro mm. telltales as well. So, so these are these are the forty variables. So, when when a deal comes in, we can we can input these variables into the model, and the model will output the probability that the deal will deliver a better than two x return, and that probability might be it might come out as sixty five percent or seventy percent, or it might come out as forty five fifty percent, and that can steer us towards whether we pursue the deal or not. And and simplistically speaking, we we can all, we can say if it's fifty percent or or worse, we don't bother. If it's fifty percent to sixty percent in the orange zone, perhaps we we look at some we we look at the the, the red flags, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then if it's sixty percent or greater, we go we go forward and do the we go forward with the human part of the the due diligence. So, mm-hmm. so in the end, it and it's it's a, it's an enhancement mm. to our to our process. And if it's below fifty percent, you really wouldn't even. No, I mean, I say m- I say simplistically because rules of thumb. Not because hard, yeah. because actually the um, there 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 are the it will tell you what the red flags are. It'll tell you which of the variables. Yeah, and they could be explained have, away. Yes, and there could be there could be a reason. There could be a yeah. weakness in that variable. Yeah, yeah they could be explained away. And so, and, so it's and a transparent other, tool. It's not yeah. like it's telling you it's something. It's not a black box. It's yeah, not like right. the computer says. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> right, right, right. No. Um, yeah. And um, so just to play devil's advocate, uh, um, the analysis was done at a moment in time. Presumably you have to keep doing it to make yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was done using over 3,000 deals in our, in our database. Mm. Um, and these are deals from underlying fund managers. These are co-investments we've done in the past. Um, these are deals where we know now know the outcome, and um, when we back tested it, we what we what we did is every time let's say we took a deal in 2010, which we're going to back test on, mm. we'd only allow the the tool to learn from all deals up until up until 2010 to apply the the learning to that deal, and then. Mm. And then we saw, well, what was the outcome? Was it correct or not? And in eighty percent of cases, the tool was correct mm. in in the in the prediction. And but we're we're, we're refining it all the time, of course. Yeah. So every year we get another year's worth of data, and yeah. and every time we we run the model, we get slightly different uh, um, outcomes. So yeah, it's it's mm. a it's it's always work in progress. And so it's it's not an. This is this. I used to be a journalist. This is the skeptical side. It's not just a marketing thing that you say. This is something that you genuinely use that informs your. Emphasis. Absolutely, yeah. And and the investment committee, they are. We are very interested in what the tool says, and it's. it's mm. it, I mean, it's no. It's it's pretty much the first question, and it's in the paper. The paper right. will say. Okay. The investment paper will say almost on the first page, 
This is what the, the tool predicts for this investment. Given how much money is at stake in private markets, it's, it's a wonder that, you know, the, mar- the market isn't employing the top professors to be crunching this all the time to get the best possible. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I know I'm, a lot of other firms are working on this as well. And, and they're, they're, yeah. they're different okay. levels of, yeah. of uh, right. progression. I, I suppose we've also benefited from the fact that we, we're now benefiting from our history. We're benefiting from the fact that we've been doing it for 30 years and we've got 3,000 mm. companies mm. that have been and gone through mm. our portfolio. and um, Much harder for an average mid-market yeah, primary-only operation to do, yeah. Because private equity is, is a notoriously opaque yeah, asset yeah, yeah. class yeah, yeah. and it's difficult to really get 40, to get mm. the, the information for, each, for 40 variables on every company. Um, so, so, and that's required a lot of legwork on our side to just to get that data in order to run our that m- machine learning. Okay, that was a long diversion, but very yeah, interesting no. topic. And by so. the way, we've also applied it to um, to funds selection. Uh, that's company right. selection. Fund selection, it's the same principle, but different variables. Um, in the for our fund selection, it's twenty three variables. It's we still call it our pepper tool, right. but because it, yeah. it's the same underlying. Uh, uh, and, and how does it model. how does it perform relative to the other? Problems? Yeah, similar. I mean, right. it, in this case, it gives a prediction of IR ultimate IRR. So, so you can actually fine tune the model, and you can you it can you can overlay it to um, to a fund uh, to a fund database like a prequin or a pitch book. Mm. You can overlay it. It's like an add on, mm. and and it, and it can it can go it can look into the um, uh, like a prequin. Mm. And um, and s- select those those companies which which will perform above a, a, a given hurdle. So thirty years into the future, when we've got an incredibly liquid, in a sense, private market industry, you could use this as a almost an indexing tool, like a, a robotic selection. Yes, tool maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, absolutely. It's it's going to be a key. It's going. It's becoming. It will become a very key tool to be used in the oh, future. Right. Although <laughs> you could argue that if managers know or the, the, there is this tool, oh, yeah. they they can play it. Yeah, it's <laughs> a it's say, a non stationary situation. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, they can say, <laughs> oh, apparently we need to have ESG, a great ESG to give good performance. So quick, let's yeah, create yeah. an ESG team. Or exactly. Apparently, gender diverse. You know, we need to be fifty fifty. Uh, and I, yeah, and suddenly the whole thing changes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you put out a note the other day that I read, <clears> and uh, I saw that fundraising, you mentioned, I think it was in, so don't quote me, although I'm trying to quote you, Q3 fundraising significantly down, but not just that, highly concentrated in a small <clears> number of managers, which I found very interesting, particularly since I don't think any of the managers you quoted were like the obvious mega buyout <clears> managers. So that's interesting in itself. Um yeah. But so anyway, it's a difficult fundraising market. Yeah, I think I think the market has 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 dropped precipitously in the last six to nine months. I mean, 21, 2021 was a was a was was a peak. When now, now we look back, it was clearly a peak. It was a, it was a crazy time in the private equity market. Mm. Um, investments, exit activity through the roof, fundraising through the roof. So it's no surprise that we're we're down on last year. But I guess the surprise is how quickly we've come down mm. and uh, indeed investment activity exit activity are well down this I mean, q3 especially was well down 
on on Q3 of of, of year ago. Um, and fundraising, yes, fundraising. On the face of it, it's not significantly down. But then, if you look at into the numbers, yes, it's clearly it's concentrated now. It's driven by 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 the mega cap mm. funds raising. People like Advents mm. raised uh, in if if you look. They raised what twenty five, twenty six billion. That's almost one third of mm. what was raised in the in, in a given quarter. So, so that that clearly uh, warps the numbers to some extent. So, it's clear that the smaller managers are having a tougher time, or that or the non mega, the non mega cap managers are having a tougher time raising. It's clear that investors themselves are are, are think are, are thinking carefully about their allocations. They've probably got some denominator issue issues going on. They've also probably got a slowdown or a slowdown in, in in distributions coming back. So this is affecting what they do as well. So it's yeah, it's an interesting time. the the other The other aspect is also valuations. You know where they where, where are valuations going? Because public markets have fallen 30 percent this year. Private equity performance hasn't yet shown a dip. I mean, in fact, in our portfolios, we've seen them going up. I think a lot, a lot of investors would see that. So it begs the question, what, what's going on? Mm. Public markets are all about pricing in, you know, pricing in expectations. And if you look at the, on the macro side, you've got inflation, you've got um, energy prices, interest rates, you've got the four C's that people talk about, you know, COVID, what is it? COVID, Climate conflict and commodity pricing, mm. so all this is playing on the markets, and it's pricing in an anticipated um, downturn, recession. Um, but this, you, we, we've yet to see a real impact in the real economy. I mean, if you go, I mean, mm. I, I've, I'm, I was in London <laughs> going out last mm. night. All the restaurants are packed. Oh, yeah. The bars are packed. Okay, mm. World Cup's going on, but. You don't feel the impact yet on in the real economy, and neither do you yet feel the impacts in private equity. Because private equity, ultimately, valuations in private equity is based on real time information of uh, of the fundamentals yeah. of private companies, and, mm-hmm. and we're not yet seeing impacts on private companies because they're showing. I mean, we look in our portfolio, EBITDA is mm-hmm. growing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, so that's one aspect. So private market valuations are less forward-looking than public. Would you say then? Is that what you? Yes. Yeah. I mean, yes, there are. Yes, mm. but the other aspect is because then you might ask, well, hang on, what about um, mark to market? If you look at uh, public uh, private multiples uh, versus public multiples over the last say ten years, they were for, from say 2013 to pre-COVID. It was pretty consistent. There was a pretty consistent discount between from private the private discount to public. Private's been around hovering eleven to twelve to thirteen. Publics have been around fifteen. Then in twenty twenty, the the publics went up. The markets went crazy in twenty twenty right. onwards. Yes, yes. And and this this the, the therefore but the the private valuations mm. more or less stayed mm. consistent. So the other way of looking at it is actually the drop in public uh, markets yeah. in the last 12 months is, is just a reversion to, to mm. where we were pre-COVID. So that's it. Uh, maybe I'm, uh, maybe I'm, I'm looking at it from a glass 
mm. half full point of view, but that's that's another way of looking at yes. uh, evaluations. And so if you think about a, a private equity manager, on one hand, they're looking at um, um, they're looking at their portfolio companies, which are mm. still, still showing growth. On the other hand, they're looking at uh, private multiples, which haven't really shifted. Mm. So they haven't yet got a, a reason to, yes. to mark down their portfolios. Yeah. And so all this feeds into pressures on fund investors, which potentially is an opportunity for your secondaries business. Yes. Yes, because... <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> Very good. Very good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because... Because you look at uh, secondary pricing, and you could argue that's a leading indicator. Because secondary pricing has come down in terms of the discounts have have increased in secondary pricing, and I think there is an anticipation in the market that that valuations that that, that private equity valuations will come down come Q four and come next year when when the real economy starts mm. to slow down a bit and there are first order, second order effects at the portfolio company levels. So, so that's, that's one thing, one thing to mention. So you've got the, the discounts coming down in anticipation of that. The other thing is you've got the, the, the supply side. You've got, um, you've got LPs who, who, uh, who actually want liquidity. And they're, they're either because they're not getting the distributions they want or because they they want to solve their denominator mm. um, issue. Denominator is that happening now, issue. or is that? It's it's starting to. Right. I mean, the um, the the prediction was maybe six months ago that the, the secondary market would um, would start to pivot towards more LP stakes because you know how GP led deals in the secondary market has been the the topic. For the mm. last two three years, and um, the discussion—if you went to a secondaries conference six months ago—was, "Oh yeah, we're we're very excited about LP stakes coming back, making a comeback." Mm. But that hasn't happened yet, mm. and I think the the key reason for that is that there's still this bid ask spread, where LPs are stubbornly wanting to sell at say par. They, they, they believe that they, they can still sell their stakes at, at close to, to net mm. asset value, whereas the secondary buyers are saying, no, 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 we want to buy this at a 20, 30% discount. And there's, a, there's this, this mm. spread which hasn't that narrowed much. yet. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm making I, I, I I'm numbers out. But you but didn't say 5%. No, but, <laughs> no, because the secondary buyers are anticipating right. um, a fall at some points. Um, so that that spread I don't think has solved itself yet and yeah. probably will start to solve itself in, in two ways. One as, as one way is that the valuations will come down. So therefore, secondary investors won't need such a discount because they've already come down. Yes. And secondly, LPs will start to, to become more motivated, yes. let's say. Yes. And what about Unigestion secondaries business? What's I don't know much about the secondaries market. What, 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 do you have a USP there? Yeah, I mean, I so the the fundamental USP is we're looking for exciting companies which play our investment themes, which are resilient, um, and um, and and also on the secondary side, we're looking for companies which are all like at an inflection point, so we can come into these portfolios, companies which. 
either have near-term liquidity or they're, they're, they're about to embark on a, on, a, on a tangible value creation initiative, which will, which will give us a, a quick uptick in, in, in valuation. So how do we apply that? We apply that through looking for, for relatively concentrated portfolios. Um, so our, our secondary strategy ends up with, our secondary funds and end up with, with um, perhaps 40, 50 uh, secondary deals with maybe 200, 250 underlying portfolio companies. That's quite concentrated compared to a to a, uh, your average secondary fund, which is where, where they're buying hundreds of stakes in portfolios, leading to almost thousands of right. underlying companies. So we're we're quite different in that respect. Yes. Yeah. And how do we how do we apply that strategy? Yes, we're we're doing quite a few GP leds. Uh, these are these could be single asset continuation funds. They could be multi assets. And we're also doing some LP stakes in in smaller portfolios. So it's a, still a lot of work analyzing all of this stuff. I mean, yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, you really want an AI tool to help you out with this part? Of it, don't you? <laughs> we do. <Yeah. laughs> no, we 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 use our AI. Oh, of course you do, because well. yeah. because of the fun side. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. You do. Well, no, but it's also we can use it for both. This yeah, is the beauty of secondaries. You can yes. use it for both. Because yeah. when you're doing single assets, yeah, you can. Uh, we we apply our tool when we're looking at funds. We can apply our tool. So it's it actually sits nicely. In the, yeah. in the in the middle there, but but um, yeah, it is a lot of work. Um, we see on the secondary side, we see three to four hundred deals per year. We end up doing twelve to fifteen uh, secondary yeah. transactions per year. So, if you were to kind of put yourself in in the shoes on the other side of the fence, and you're an institutional investor, an LP, there's a lot of uncertainty out there. I mean, what would you do? You know, to to manage your portfolio, do you bide your time? Do you take the hit? Do you, are there other tools that you could consider? If I were, I mean, as, as a, a private equity investor, investor, I think there are a few things. Firstly, um, vintage diversification is always key. And mm. I think um, when you invest in, in, if you're an investor in private equity, you don't invest all your money on one day. It's not like buying into a, a, a mutual fund. A, a listed mutual fund where you're 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 coming into the market all in one day. In in private equity, you're you invest in a uh, a portfolio which gets deployed over 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 a number over mm. two or three years, and that that's true for a direct fund. That's true for a secondary fund. That's true for a uh, a funder fund. So that's one mm. uh, strength of private equity that you you get this this natural diversification time diversification. Mm. And the other, I think the other aspect of, of, of private equity is if, and then certainly the way we apply is you're investing in fundamentals at the end of the day. You're not investing mm. in emotions. Mm. And um, when you invest in a company, you're investing into a company because it has a reason to exist, it, because it has, it provides mission, ideally it provides mission critical products and services. Um, uh, in our case, we're looking for companies which have robust cash flows. We're looking for companies which, as I said, which are playing these long-term growth themes. Mm. So, in in theory, these companies will will persist, will perform, irrespective of the of, of the of a difficult environment ahead. Unigestion's grown a lot in and in many different ways as well. 
um, in the since you've been there, so mm-hmm. over twenty years, um, it's very difficult to look in the crystal ball. Um, but I guess the broad question is how scalable is uh, private equity, private markets generally? And then the more specific question is how do you see unigestion evolving over over the coming years or decade within that? Private equity is scalable to a point. If you're like us, where you're you're investing in in a certain area part of the market, you're looking for for these exciting companies, but you're building relatively concentrated portfolios. Yes, you you can for, you can raise a, a one. I mean, we're, our latest direct fund, we're raising a one billion euro fund. Our latest secondary fund, it's a one point five billion, um, which we'll raise next year will be one point five billion. So. We can scale these um, to a certain extent. We we will grow the team. We we can do a few more deals in the fund, slightly bigger deals. But there's a limit to that. Um, but there are also other areas I can s- see us going into. So so for example, we're we're raising our climate impact fund at the moment. Now, at the moment, this is our first fund. It, well, it's actually a continuation of a, of a strategy we started 12 years ago, but this particular fund is 300 million. Yes, we, could, we can scale that to a certain extent. We can also launch a social impact fund uh, or impact funds in other areas. So that, that can be scaled. But all of this, I think there'll be a, a limit. And then also AI tools help you research and development that allows you to, to, to leverage your platform. So if you apply, if you put that all together, I can mm. see us uh, growing, you know, doubling our AUM in say the next five to five mm. to seven years, but but not not exponential. Paul, thank you so much for sparing your thoughts. I feel like I have a rudimentary understanding of how to run an asset manager now. So that's <laughs> been my <laughs> very pleasure. Good of you. Hope Unigestion goes from strength to strength. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. You've been listening to the Fund Shack podcast. Make sure you subscribe. And visit our website at fund-shack.com for many more video interviews. It's the private capital channel for alternative investment professionals. Thanks for listening.